With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Welcome back to Mind Over Murder. This bonus episode is one of three episodes that we originally recorded in 2020 covering the Grim Sleeper case, a long-standing series of unsolved murders in Los Angeles that were later solved using familial DNA. Much of our discussion is based on the book on the Grim Sleeper case by Christine Pelisek, and our three-part bonus series concludes with an interview with Christine Pelisek discussing her book, Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central, which we highly recommend. We hope you enjoy this bonus episode of Mind Over Murder, and thanks as always for listening. We're very excited to have you join us wherever you're listening to this program. Please take a couple of minutes and tell people what you think about the show. We very much appreciate your support. The more that you can convey your positive views about this podcast, the more helpful it is to us. We're not trying to assign you homework or anything like that. Your reviews really do help our podcast. helps us grow. It helps us gain more of an audience. And you all are so terribly kind on our Facebook page, but it does help us even more if you just take a couple of minutes and jot down the things that you think are moderately excellent about our podcast. And for this week's episode of Mind Over Murder, we are starting to take a look at the case of the Grim Sleeper from Los Angeles. This is a case that started in the 1980s and stretched all the way up to the mid-2000s. Lonnie Franklin Jr. was convicted in this case, which stretched over more than 20 years and was finally resolved with his arrest in 2010 and conviction in 2016. It's an amazing case that was solved partially through familial DNA, and we'll be getting into that as our discussion unfolds. 
This is a case that I hadn't heard a whole lot about. And when I asked Bill, what are some cases from your neck of the woods, from the various places that Bill has lived in, he mentioned the Grim Sleeper because Bill spent how many years in LA, Bill? I think it was 12, 2006 to 2018. So how much do you remember about this case? Oh, I remember a lot about this case. Now, Lonnie Franklin Jr. killed a number of women, and we'll get into the details, over about a 20-year period. The case broke in 2010, and I remember it was all over the media. And of course, the fact that this case had apparently gone to sleep hence the name The Grim Sleeper, was a fascinating aspect to the case. And then, remember when the case broke, they were discussing in the Los Angeles Times and the Los Angeles Weekly and other publications, and of course on television, about the use of this familial DNA, which was a technique that none of us knew anything about. I think the most shocking memory I have is that the Los Angeles Police Department then began publishing hundreds and hundreds of photographs of women that they thought were his victims. There are confirmed at least 180 women in these photographs, but the photographs actually number nearly a 1,000 Polaroids. For our younger listeners, this, this is an instant <laughs> photography camera that didn't require you to take it to a lab to develop the film. It was a bit more expensive on a per shot basis, but it's used by families and other folks. Lonnie Franklin Jr. took hundreds and hundreds of photographs and the LAPD and the Los Angeles Times ran these photographs. Some of the women look like they're alive and smiling, but in a number of other photographs, they look like they're either drugged or dead. They're just their faces, so they're not terribly graphic, but they were asking the public's help in identifying who the women were in the photographs because this guy was a collector. I remember how shocking it was. And then other odd details stood out for me. And I know we're going to want to get into some of those things as the case unfolded. I thought it was a fascinating and disturbing case. I also think this case highlights some issues which are very much top of mind in terms of our discussion about Black Lives Matter and so on. Lonnie Franklin Jr. is African-American. His victims were almost exclusively African-American. And many experts feel that one of the reasons why this case was allowed to stretch on for as long as it did is because the LAPD and the city of Los Angeles failed to put resources into this case to help resolve it. We would like to talk about the sources that we used for this week. This is a case that has no small amount of excellent material that's been written about it. I want to give credit where credit is due Really, the best reporting about this case was done by writer Christine Palisak. She was a reporter for LA Weekly. How would you describe that magazine, Bill? Is it- it's a weekly alternative newspaper, not unlike the Village Voice. So she wrote a series of really interesting articles through the entirety of this case. And so any reporting by Christine Palisak in LA Weekly is definitely worth your time to read. And all of that reporting uh, does come together in Christine's book from 2017 called The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central. And I'm reading it now, and I would highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in this case. It is wonderful. 
Christine Pelisek has gone on to be a true crime reporter at People Magazine, and so her ongoing outstanding work is available there as well. And as always, we will provide you all with a source list, which we put in our show notes at the end of every uh, episode. Really, the best reporting is by Christine Pelisek on the whole. One thing that's worth noting, we obviously are big fans of true crime podcasts. We probably think we should note at this point, we try very hard not to listen to any reporting on another true crime podcast prior to recording an episode. That is, in a situation like this where we're talking about the Grim Sleeper case here and we hope to report out some of the facts of the case and so on, we try very hard not to listen to the work of other podcasters. There have been problems over the last couple of years with plagiarism and podcasters being absolutely certain that their work has been borrowed, i.e. stolen, by other podcasters. We respect the work of our colleagues and enjoy it, but we try very hard to never listen to their podcasts if there's going to be any kind of overlap between the topic that we're discussing that week and any reporting they may have done in recent months. And with that said, we'll go ahead and jump into the case. So we'll go ahead and start with our perpetrator. The gentleman in question, although I really don't know that calling him a gentleman is the best name for him, his name is Lonnie Franklin Jr. He was known as the Grim Sleeper. And the name Grim Sleeper is one that was actually coined by the LA Weekly reporting staff because of the 13-year gap between Franklin's first set of victims in the 1980s and when he resumed killing in 2002. And also according to LA Weekly, Lonnie Franklin Jr., the Grim Sleeper, could be considered the longest operating serial killer west of the Mississippi. But it's probably a pretty good bet that, like me, you may not have heard about this case. I think if you weren't living in Los Angeles, and particularly after the case broke wide open in 2010 with Lonnie Franklin Jr.'s arrest, I don't feel like this was a case that was known particularly well across the country. The Grim Sleeper name, I personally think, is a bit of a misnomer because some of the experts, including many of the investigators, think that the 13-year gap may actually be a time frame in which murders were taking place but not being correctly attributed to Lonnie Franklin Jr. The Grim Sleeper case, although it's fairly evocative, I think it may be a little bit of a misnomer because I actually don't think he went to sleep I think he continued to kill, but either the MO was different or the cases were not attributed to Franklin, and therefore there was a sense that this 13-year gap took place. I have my doubts about that. And I was very struck by the fact that even up into the penalty phase of his trial in 2016, more victims were being discovered and attributed to him. So it is entirely possible that, as you said, Bill, he was killing during that 13-year period when he went to sleep, allegedly, but we don't know where those victims are. He did work in the sanitation department for the city of Los Angeles I think it is more than likely that a number of his victims ended up in landfills. So we may never really know the full extent of Lonnie Franklin's malice. Just doesn't seem like the right word. Mm -hmm. Depravity, I think, is probably the better one. And sadly, he died in San Quentin prison of undetermined causes 
in March of last year. And it's funny, we were both searching for updated articles because they said at the time that he'd been found dead in his cell and they've never announced a They did go out of their way to say that there was no trauma on the body. So I I think we can probably rule out anybody shanking him or doing whatever to cause him bodily harm. But I'm going to be very interested to see if they do release that information eventually as to uh, what ultimately got him in the end. He may have actually died of natural causes. Let's go ahead and get a little bit into his background and then we'll delve into the timeline of the case and the victims. Because there is so much information about this, and because we do want to discuss with our upcoming guests the concepts about familial DNA, we are going to leave some of that information for another episode. This won't be everything that you want on The Grim Sleeper, but we will get to it eventually. All right, Lonnie Franklin is from Los Angeles, and he lived in the area of LA called South Central. He was a sickly child for most of his childhood and up into teenagehood. He was actually afflicted with severe migraines and suffered bleeding ulcers. He was a struggling student, but one thing he did excel at always was fixing cars. And this does play into the jobs that he held as an adult, which we'll get into a little bit later. He was described by his high school classmates and by people who knew him in his later life as a fast talker, a flirt, a guy who had the gift of the gab is the best way to put it. Very friendly, very personable, very likable. This is worth noting because as a serial killer, most serial killers don't fit in the friendly, outgoing category. As a matter of fact, usually quite the opposite. That one there's a number of others we'll get into, is quite unusual in terms of Lonnie Franklin Jr. being very friendly and well-known in the neighborhood and the community as a guy that, that liked to talk about sports, cars, girls, and other things. It was right around age 16 that Lonnie Franklin started getting into trouble. He was arrested twice for grand theft auto, once for burglary, He actually was in an altercation with a classmate and expelled from high school two weeks before graduation. Seems a little excessive to me, pretty terrible, but ultimately he did not end up graduating from high school because he was expelled two weeks before that graduation ceremony. So he worked a series of jobs until he finally joined the U.S. Army in 1971 and was stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. In Germany was where he had his first, I would say, problematic run-in with women that we're aware of. He and two army buddies were convicted of raping a German teenager. She goes by the name of Ingrid W., and Ingrid W. does actually come into play a little bit later. So just put a pin in that name. You will hear it again. And once he was convicted of raping and assaulting her, he was given a general discharge from the army. Not a dishonorable one. I was a little surprised by that. Me too. And coming from a military family, here's a convicted rapist and he's only given a general discharge. I was very struck by that. So once he returned to the United States, he did meet and eventually marry the woman who would become his wife for the rest of his life. Her name was Sylvia. He had two children with her, Crystal, a daughter, and Christopher, a son. And Christopher also becomes important a little bit later in the story. So again, we'll put a pin in him and come right back to Lonnie Franklin Jr. worked at a number of jobs, including as a garage attendant and then a mechanic. 
at the LA Police Department's Central Division. Another thing that I found interesting. This is worth noting. This I found shocking back in 2010 when Lonnie Franklin Jr. was arrested and it got so much press in L.A. where I was living at the time. Lonnie Franklin Jr. literally was under the nose, the detectives that were working his case while he was servicing their cars they actually believe that he was changing the oil of the vehicles used by the detectives that were looking to catch him. It's the strangest set of circumstances. I've always found this completely bizarre that this guy was actually working for the LAPD in the garage and servicing the vehicles. And I wonder if he maybe wasn't getting a little bit of a charge out of that. Clearly, we'll never know now. Eventually, he did take a job with the Department of Sanitation simply because it paid better and it offered more opportunities for overtime work so that he could earn more money. Rather interestingly, his time with the Department of Sanitation was marked by multiple injuries. We're talking six, seven instances in which he put in for disability, claiming uh, a rotator cuff injury or an injury to his leg or his hip. He was on and off of medical leave, and it was interesting to note that a number of the times when Lonnie Franklin Jr. was on medical leave from his job coincided with many of the times that some of the murders in South Central were happening. But as the journalists note, he had the time and the money to pursue these prostitutes and go out at night and prowl the streets of South Central Los Angeles looking for women to rape and murder. He was ultimately placed on permanent disability. He was found too disabled to work in 1991. And so then he had pretty much all the time that he needed in order to satisfy that desire to continue working with cars and in order to, I'm sure, obtain the money that's needed to maintain a lifestyle. He began a stolen auto parts business out of his backyard. And this is one of those situations where he's found to be disabled, permanently disabled, and not able to work for the sanitation department. But he's well enough to work on cars and sell stolen parts out of the yard at his home in South Central. And it was interesting. I was watching the documentary by Nick Broomfield last night, and a number of his friends made the distinction to Broomfield. Lonnie didn't steal the cars that he was chopping up and selling for parts. They were clear to say he wasn't a car thief. He sold stolen car parts, but he never did the stealing themselves. Like It was interesting that they took the time to make that distinction to let him know, like, no, he, he wasn't a thief. No, he wasn't anything like that. He's a broker of stolen car parts. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> but not a yeah. car thief per se. Yeah. It's, it seemed like it was very important to them to have that distinction made. And the police were quite well aware of his auto parts business. They, they kept a close enough eye on it, in fact, and that he was busted on six counts of grand theft auto. He did plead guilty to that rather than opt to stand trial for it. That wasn't his only run-in with the police. And in fact, he was fairly well known to the police. He had been arrested a number of times for, let's run down the list here, grand theft, burglary, carrying a loaded firearm, assault with a deadly weapon. And of course, later on in his criminal career, he would be uh, tried and convicted for much worse than that. 
At one point, he was given a 365-day jail sentence and then ultimately placed on probation. He did spend some time in jail, but the jails in L.A. were so crowded at one point that he was simply let out on release with a bunch of other prisoners. Even though he had multiple run-ins with the law, he did continue his stolen car business. He had a habit of assaulting women who angered him. He also dealt in stolen electronics, like computers and flat-screen TVs, which he either gave away to people, depending on how he was feeling, or sold to people. Most of the neighbors just tended to look the other way about that, because he gave me three flat-screen TVs. It was very interesting to me that the point was made a couple of times, not just in the reporting and in the book, but also in the documentary, that Lonnie Franklin did not drink and he did not abuse drugs. And this seemed to be a point that a number of his friends really wanted to get clear on when they were speaking to documentary filmmaker Nick Broomfield. They said that he looked down on people who abused drugs, but he was not above giving them to women who he wanted to get into his car, to mess around with, to assault, to do whatever with. This is in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1980s and 90s. So there was a tremendous amount of drugs in South Central Los Angeles and throughout LA and a lot of cheap drugs. He used drugs to incapacitate women, but did not partake himself. And he apparently felt very strongly about the fact that doing drugs was something that made you cheap. It was something that indicated that you were not like a strong personality. He really did look down on people who use drugs and felt the need to abuse their bodies in that way. He did not drink. He made a point of saying that he only drank socially. He actually described himself at one point as a teetotal. Here's somebody who pretty clearly has some power and control issues. He wants to be in control, but has no problem giving women who were having their own issues with drugs the dose of the drugs that would be needed for him to control them. He was known for carrying around and showing off a 25 caliber pistol that he kept in the top pocket of his shirt. His friends did say that he had a habit of just pulling out the gun and flashing it. Check it out. Got a gun. And this 25 caliber weapon figured prominently in the series of murders that he's directly responsible for. Absolutely. And we will come to that in just a couple of minutes. If Lonnie Franklin did have one weakness, it was women. Although he appeared to be a good husband, he did have multiple girlfriends during his marriage. Four was the number that was quoted in Christine Pelisek's book. He would regularly go out on weeknights and weekends and find prostitutes on the street. He called them his friends or his girls. Some of them he learned their names of, others he just called by their names of various body parts, like skinny legs. And he kept an enormous file of photos of all of these women that he would pick up and have sex with and then take Polaroid photos of. And he just had this enormous stack of photos There were over, what was it? Did we finally come to a consensus on the number? Over a thousand? There's something like a thousand. Some of the reporting says that there are 180 different women in the photograph. So there may be multiple photographs. And this is something, as I mentioned earlier, that I recall the LAPD ran in the newspaper and in online media hundreds and hundreds of numbered photographs in an attempt to identify these women. 
some of the women were clearly alive and smiling and looking at the camera and so on. Others appeared drugged or maybe even dead, and they were just pictures of their face. But I remember being so struck by hundreds and hundreds of pictures with a headline at the top, LAPD seeks your assistance. These women are not suspects. We believe they are victims of the individual known as the Grim Sleeper. Can you help us identify who these women are? You're listening to Mind Over Murder. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back here at Mind Over Murder. Just unbelievable. The amount of gall that it takes to keep that many trophies from that many victims. And again, we don't have a reliable count of how many victims Lonnie Franklin may have had. The reporting does differ. And as the case gets older and more investigation and DNA analysis is done, the number changes. He may have as many as 25 victims, but that number has gone up. It's worth noting that at the time the Rolling Stone article was written, Lonnie Franklin Jr. was listed as one of America's most prolific serial killers. We now know, though, that type of most prolific serial killer would have to go to Samuel Little, who had been linked to more than 60 murders and claims to have murdered as many as 93 women. And he's his own brand of awful. Now, Lonnie Franklin seemed to specialize and focus on women of color who were living somewhat marginal lives. Women that were drug users, that were sex workers, that were trading sex for drugs and were living pretty much on the streets of South Central Los Angeles. And one of the reasons why they think that so many of his victims may have gone unidentified is they may have become disenfranchised from their own families. Obviously, a lot of people that come to Los Angeles aren't necessarily from LA originally, or they had lost touch with friends and family. It's very disturbing to see page after page of these photographs of his female victims from this vast collect. And these are the non-graphic photos. These are the ones that could run in the newspaper and online. They think that one of the reasons why it's so hard to get a handle on how many victims there could be, and it could run into the hundreds, is that so many of these women still to this day remain unidentified. That is the most tragic aspect of all of this, I think, uh, is that you could disappear and be murdered and no one would ever know what happened to you. As Bill mentioned, the murders took place in the South Central section of Los Angeles during a time, the 1980s and 90s, when crack cocaine was rampant. Most of the women, not all, but most of the women who Lonnie Franklin preyed on were dealing with drug addiction in some form or another. They were not all prostitutes. Most of them were, but not all of them. And during that time period in South Central, I was actually fascinated to learn that Lonnie Franklin was not the only serial killer who was trolling 
for victims in South Central LA. According to Christine Pelisek's writing on the case, there were as many as six active serial killers at one time trolling the streets in South Central LA looking for victims, mainly black prostitutes. The whole thing is just horrifying. It does not appear that the Los Angeles Police Department put significant resources into clearly a target-rich environment where serial killers were zeroing in on this South Central neighborhood already ravaged by drugs and crime, and they recognized that there were a ton of potential victims available there. And so women were disappearing left and right. Most of the cases went unsolved. So we'll go ahead and get down to it and start talking about Lonnie Franklin Jr.'s victims because the victims are the ones that matter the most in these cases. The murder started in August of 1985, and they continued for a span of three years until 1987 when the murders abruptly stopped, or at least the victims that we know of for sure. The last of them occurred in 1987. Then there was that 13-year sleep period, and then the murders picked back up in 2002. Victim number one was murdered in August of 1985. Her name was Deborah Jackson. She was a cocktail waitress and a mother of three who was dealing with drug addiction. She was shot three times in the chest and was found dumped in an alley off of West Gage Avenue. And this is all pretty much in the same area of South Central L.A., This uh, Western Avenue, which is a very major thoroughfare and not far from where Franklin lived, when you see a map of his known victims, they're all clustered along this Western Avenue corridor. I think it would be interesting to look at that from a geographic profile perspective because they really were like they were clustered right around his house. We were talking about serial killers also operating in L.A. during that time period. It's actually a good time to mention that Deborah Jackson's death was overshadowed by the work of another serial killer who was working in L.A. during that time period, and that was Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. So any attention that the media might have paid to her death was ultimately overshadowed by the fact that Richard Ramirez was perpetuating horrible crimes during this time period. All right, victims two and three from 1986. Henrietta Cody Wright, 34 years old, a mother of five. She also was dealing with drug addiction. She was shot twice in the chest and dumped in an alley on West Vernon Avenue. Victim three, we don't know a whole lot about. And in fact, I haven't found a lot of information on this. But there is one male victim by the name of Thomas Steele, who was murdered on August 14th of 1986. And there's not a lot of information on him, except that he was found in the middle of an intersection. And I'm not entirely clear in all of this reporting, I have not found why he's been grouped in with these other victims. Hopefully we can find more information about that, put some links up in our show notes about that. Thomas Steele is the only male victim. He is grouped in as victim three of Lonnie Franklin Jr., One article I read said that he may have been a friend of one of Franklin's victims and confronted him in some way. And they think that's why Steele is part of this series, because he's very much outside the victim profile for Lonnie Franklin Jr. In 1987, he seemed to pick up speed and murdered three victims, four, five, and six. Barbara Ware in January... 
Bernita Sparks in April, and Mary Lowe in November. And all of these were women who were dealing with drug addictions of various kinds, some of whom were very bright and passionate and had good futures ahead of them, but had gotten tangled in this, you know, web of crack addiction and couldn't get out from underneath it for whatever reason. In 1988, victims seven and eight, Lucretia Jefferson in January and Alicia Monique Alexander in September. Again, these are only the victims that we know about. There could be others. In fact, you know, I'm sure that there are others. Then we come to victim nine from 1988. And her story, I read all about this account of victim nine, who is a survivor of Lonnie Franklin Jr. And I just could not help but be blown away by the strength of this woman to survive this kind of brutal attack from him. So in November of 1988, in Nitria, Washington, was walking to meet a friend at a party when Lonnie Franklin Jr. offered her a ride. He pulled up beside her in his orange Ford Pinto with white racing stripes on the corner of 80th and Western. And she's quoted as saying that the car reminded her of a matchbox car, the little <laughs> tiny like micro machine things. I don't know, micro machines were my era, not yours. You grew up with matchbox cars, right? I did. Matchbox and Hot Wheels cars. Okay. So she said the, the car actually reminded her of the, the matchbox cars that her kids played with. Right. Um, so that's why the, the car stuck in her mind the way that. So he pulled up beside her and asked, Do you want me to give you a ride? And she said, No. Thank you. I'm good. I don't need a ride. Uh, She described him as appearing neat, clean, and a little nerdy, wearing a polo shirt tucked into khakis. He kept pushing her to accept a ride, and she kept turning him down. And he kept pushing, and she kept turning him down until finally she just said, okay, sure, fine. You, You can take me to my friend's house. And it was just down the way a couple blocks up. Once she climbed into the car... He invited himself along to this party. And she was like, okay, <laughs> sure, fine, whatever. She's probably just, get this guy off my back, whatever. And I was struck by the fact that she described the interior of the orange Ford Pinto as immaculate with mm-hmm. an all-white interior. There's just things about Franklin that just are a little off from the things mm-hmm. we've read about classic, if there is such a thing, uh, serial killers. And I've got to say, she's a great eyewitness. This is so helpful. And this is so interesting. And to see what she remembered from all of this. And unfortunately, the LAPD had a wonderful resource in her. She was not consulted in any way after what happened to her. She was not really consulted by the LAPD and and asked for her help. This part I found so frustrating because in a properly run investigation, Anitria Washington's experience and survival of this assault should have been the thing that broke this case wide uh-huh. open. Oh, yeah. He had someone who survived an attack, and I know you want to get into this. This should have resulted in a significant amount of resources being put into searching for a very good description of the man and an extremely accurate description of his car. I know that there was more than one orange Ford Pinto on the streets of Los Angeles in the late 1980s, but come on. 
the, mm-hmm. she gave them an excellent description of this guy and nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing. So after he invited himself to this party, he said he needed to run to his uncle's house to get some money. She was the captive audience at that point, so she said, okay. He drove to what she described as a neat house on a residential street. And ultimately, many years later, when she drove the route with LAPD, she would learn that the house that he stopped at was actually two houses down from Lonnie Franklin's own house. He left the car. He talked to someone at the door of the house for about 10 minutes. And she said when he reappeared, his attitude was completely different. He was no longer polite. Instead, he called her by the name of a local prostitute who happened to look like Anitria, but wasn't her. Said some very rude things to her, apparently, whichever local prostitute he had mistaken her for, he had not had a good interaction with this person. When his tone turned hostile, she basically asked him, who do you think you're talking to? And at that point, he very quickly pulled a handgun out of the driver's side door of the Pinto and shot her in the chest as he drove. She said she wasn't even aware that she'd been shot for a minute. It took her a second to figure out what had happened. When she did come to this realization, oh my God, I've been shot. She didn't try to scream or make a run for it or anything like that. Shock, I'm guessing. All she could do was ask, why did you shoot me? What did you do that for? She blacked out. She said she remembered waking up to the flash from a Polaroid camera. And again, for anybody who's not familiar with what a Polaroid looks like, it does have a very bright, obnoxious flash. And it produces that little tiny square photo that you shake to develop faster. I barely remember Polaroid, so I'm sure that we have people younger than me who are are listening who have no idea what we're talking about in terms of Polaroids. I picture some of our younger listeners thinking, what are these two talking about? This is before digital camera, and it was the first instant photography. That is, you didn't have to take it to a lab. Obviously, Lonnie Franklin Jr. or anyone like him is not going to be able to take hundreds of photographs of women and remember he's not killing all of the prostitutes that he's visiting but he is taking photographs which are often very graphic so he's not going to be able to take these down to used to take them down to the drugstore or the photo lab again. the photo mat yeah yeah the photo mat and you would drop off your film from a film camera and get them developed and you'd pick them up a few days later and you'd pay your 10 bucks or whatever and you'd have a whole bunch of prints of pictures the polaroid which was developed by the company of that name from cambridge massachusetts was an instant camera so that if you were going to take pictures of this type that you didn't necessarily want to share with your friends down at the photo mat, you would shoot using a Polaroid camera. She woke up to the flash from the camera and figured out pretty quickly that he had assaulted her and he had taken her photo. At that point, she did struggle with him. She demanded that he take her to the hospital. He refused, of course. She said she recalled him saying that if he took her to the hospital, he'd be caught. So he wasn't going to take her to the hospital. Finally, he just pulled over, beat her with the gun and shoved her out of the car into the street and left her presumably for dead. But because Anitria was such a tough cookie, she picked herself up. She walked several blocks to her best friend Linda Lewis's house, trailing blood. She hammered on the door for help. Nobody opened their doors because at that time of night in South Central, you didn't open your doors for anyone. 
So she stayed on the porch until her best friend arrived home from the party that she had been originally walking to. She was taken to the Harbor UCLA Medical Center. The bullet was removed from her chest five days after the shooting. The doctor said it needed time to settle. I guess they couldn't pull it out immediately. But ultimately, when the bullet was removed from her chest and taken to LAPD, it was matched to the bullets, the 25 caliber bullets found in the other previously mentioned unsolved cases in South Central. So now LAPD knew it is one guy going around South Central with a 25 caliber handgun shooting and assaulting black women. And this is in 1988. Here we have a survivor who was clearly been victimized by a serial killer. And yet she's not even told that she had been shot by a serial killer until 2006. Most people back in the 80s have no recollection whatsoever of any kind of publicity surrounding the fact that there were serial killings going on in South Central Los Angeles at that time. So right around the time of all of these serial killers, multiple serial killers working in South Central, a woman named Margaret Prescott started a coalition called the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders. She formed that coalition in an attempt to make sure that people in the community were aware there's a lot of danger out here. There are Black women who are dying left and right, and we have to be careful. She leafleted and she stood outside of grocery stores, drawing attention to the fact that, hey, there have been crimes all throughout here. Please be careful. Please, if you see anything, let somebody know. She was very vocal and has continued to be very vocal about the fact that she felt the LAPD was paying very little to no attention to the murders of Black women in South Central. I think that criticism is completely warranted. Note that this is a private citizen who took it upon herself with others to begin publicizing the fact that South Central Los Angeles had a problem with serial killings. I think the mayor, the chief of police, and others should have been speaking out, and I don't believe that they were. The coalition declared, quote, the low profile media coverage and problems with the investigation are all examples of women's lives not counting and black prostitute women counting least. And I think that pretty much hits the nail on the head. I would have to agree. After Anitria Washington's run in with Lonnie Franklin Jr., the killings stopped for 13 years. Clearly, Bill and I don't think. I'm no, sure. I, I, I think the killings continued. I just think that Mr. Franklin's access to landfill and knowing how the Department of Sanitation worked allowed him to stop leaving victims in alleys and in dumpsters and start hiding them in with Los Angeles's millions of tons of trash produced okay. every year. I am highly confident that he killed a number of other women During that 13-year period, he just disposed of their bodies in a more clever is not exactly the word I'm looking for. Sure. In a way where the bodies were not discovered. Prior to that, he'd been leaving the bodies, sometimes even in the middle of the street. And so bodies were being discovered. I think he modified his techniques during the time he was working for the Department of Sanitation and was able to dispose of the bodies. Therefore, these women who were on the margins to start with essentially disappeared. 
So there was that gap, that 13-year gap. During that time period, crime in LA began to drop fairly dramatically. In fact, during that time period, LA eventually became the second safest big city in America. And so in 2001, the police chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, Bernard Parks, ordered reinvestigations into cold cases from the 90s and the 80s using all of the new shiny, excellent, cool tools available in DNA matching to test old evidence, which I think is a great initiative on his part. I'm, it is excellent that he did it because they never would have put together any of the information about the Grim Sleepers, old and new cases. So in 2001, that was ordered. The LAPD crime lab began testing and retesting and looking through and trying to dial down the stack eventually. Our favorite statistic here on the show is that there are over 200,000 cold case murders in the United States. And I'm sure that number was much higher before DNA testing was used to break a lot of cases. Would I be right in, in saying that, Bill? Is that think, seem accurate? I think that's fair. That's a current number, so we still have a lot of work. It was during this period of testing and retesting cold cases in 2004 and 2005 that the LAPD crime lab struck gold, essentially. They were testing physical evidence from the 1980 cases and were able to link traces of saliva left on the breasts of the victims from the 1980 cases to two recent murders from 2002 and 2003, sending up red flags that there was a serial killer who had stalked Western Avenue in the 80s, who was once again stalking Western Avenue at that point in time. So now I'm going to go ahead and jump back to the next three victims. If victim nine in Atria, Washington was a survivor, victim 10, her name was Princess, and I'm going to butcher her last name, and I am so sorry. It looks French to me, so I'm going to go with Bartimeu, Princess Bartimeu. She's 14 years old. Uh, she is the youngest victim. She was reported missing from her foster home in December of 2001, and her body was found four months later in Inglewood, also shot to death. Same MO. Victim 11 came next year, 2003. She was Valerie McCorvey, age 35, also shot to death and discovered by a crossing guard in an alley. And then finally, victim 12 from 2007, again, keeping in mind that there were probably more victims. Janisha Peters, 25. She was found in a dumpster off of Western Avenue. She had been shot and she'd been wrapped in a black trash bag with a twist tie. So when the LAPD was going through and looking at all of the physical evidence, they were able to link the 80 cases to the cases from 2002 and 2003. And that made people realize we still have a serial killer. He's still out there. He's still prowling. Unfortunately, though, the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, Bill Bratton, did not pay very much attention to these murders. He did not feel the need to alert the local community or the families of the victims that the killer was still on the streets. He did not convene a special task force to investigate the crimes, at least not right away. It wasn't until 2007, in the wake of Janisha Peters' murder, that at the urging of Detective Dennis Kilcoyne, Bill Bratton finally assembled a task force of six detectives known as the 800 Task Force. And the 800 is named after the room in LAPD where they convened to investigate the crimes. Sources used in this week's episode include 
reporting from Nick Broomfield in Tales of the Grim Sleeper, an HBO documentary. Christine Pelisek reporting in the LA Weekly. Also Christine Pelisek in her book, The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central. Holly Silverman of CNN.com and Suzanne Zappello of Rolling Stone. Mind Over Murder is a production of Absolute Zero and Another Dog Productions. Our executive producers are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Our logo art is by Pamela Arnois. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Mind Over Murder is distributed in partnership with Crawl Space Media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also follow our page on the Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook. And finally, you can follow Bill Thomas on Twitter at BillThomas56. Thank you for listening to Mind Over Murder. <laughs>